Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. This morning, we are back in our series uh, for this summer called God's Heart, Our City, where we have been exploring what is it that God would call our church to be to fulfill his heart for this city of Salem and the surrounding areas. And so we've each week been kind of talking about what that looks like and what it means. And we've talked about God's desires for every person to find their meaning in him and that his church would be a place that when people from outside would interact with followers of Christ, there'd be something about their words and their actions that would cause them to desire to look deeper into what the Bible offers those who would place their faith in Christ. And last week we we talked about how it's love that needs to drive any program or ministry that we would want to give to this city. But we do feel called as a church to expand three areas of ministry that God has put a passion in our hearts to be about for our city. To expand um, the ideas of uh, the ministries of biblical counseling and addictions victory. But another area of ministry that we've mentioned many times before that we want to, to be of service to our city for God's glory is in the care of other churches, not as the experts, not as a church that has all has it all figured out, not a church made of perfect people, but a church filled with life and godliness and a desire to help those with the same help that we are receiving from Christ. And so the question for a church who's talking about helping other churches might be, well, what about us? Why should we be concerned about those outside of our church, those other congregations that are meeting this weekend to worship, why not just focus on our church? And to help us understand the importance of that, we've invited our guest speaker this morning, Jimmy Dodd. So Jimmy, would you join me up here on stage? Can we welcome Jimmy to Salem Heights? We've mentioned before uh, this summer as we've brought in guest speakers that we've, we've invited men who could help uh, unpack what they hear as we've shared our vision with them and what our heart is, bring someone who works in a specific area of, that's tied to this area of mission and be able to expand that for us today. It's good for us to hear from other believers from other parts of the country. So Jimmy, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, tell us about your family and what you do. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm from Kansas City. No applause, <laughs> come on. And uh, I have an amazing wife, Sally. I have five kids, 35, 32, 27, 19, and 17. So we spread things out a little bit. Yeah. 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 So I went to you 2 and the Wiggles in the same week one time. So <laughs> probably yeah. the only person that's ever done that. Anyway. And Jimmy, you, uh, you founded an organization that helps pastors called Pastor Serve. Tell us a little bit about what that, that organization does. Yeah, we, get, uh, we just get to care for pastors. Pastors need pastors too, right? You think, okay, the pastor pastors me. Where does the pastor go? And there's a lot of pastors that don't feel like they have a place to go. So we get to pastor pastors. We get to care for them. We get to coach them. We do some consulting. If there's a crisis, we get to help. We have staff around the country. Clark Tanner is right by you guys. He's up in Portland. So he's our guy for this area. And he's here just to care for pastors. Yeah. And so as you get to interact with churches across the nation and be able to come in and help and encourage and consult, what is the thing that you've observed the most that the, the average attender doesn't realize about the spiritual and physical health of their pastor? That's a great question. 
Yeah, it's one of those things, um, I mean, pastors are people too. We just have to remember that pastors are people too. They have the same struggles as everybody else. They need your prayer support. They need you to have their backs. They need you to actively care for them because oftentimes we just think they've got it all rolling and all together and they need your support desperately. And so you're going to help a little bit more in your message. I won't get into that about why we should be considered then for other churches. But uh, as we've got to spend some time together and get to know each other, you actually shared that Salem has a pretty significant place in your own history, even though you're from Kansas City. Tell us about that. Yeah, it does. So I was here in Salem because I was a part of a church in Wichita uh, years and years ago, and we had a singing group. And so we would sing around the country and be like involved in revivals and things like that. And we came here. Uh, the last week in June in 1976. Uh, that's a long time ago. And uh, we were here for, for a week. And I felt called at that time to be, be a pastor, but I'm still young, so I still have got those doubts and questions. And my, my call was massively affirmed that week. And it was just, this just became a very, very special place. Honestly, this is my first time back here since then. And so I've always thought, I hope some church one day asked me to, you know, come and preach in Salem because this, this, this place has a very special place in my spiritual journey. So I love it. And so we've asked Jimmy to come in and talk a little bit today about why should we as a church be concerned about the spiritual health of other churches in our city. So let me pray for you and Great. let you deliver the word to Thanks. us this morning. God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to hear from Jimmy. God, you've given him a passage and a text from your word that you want him to declare to us. And so we pray that you'd speak powerfully and clearly through him this morning and allow our church to consider what he has to offer from you, God. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. So one, one more way, I think, in which you can just actively care for pastors. I was in Atlanta and preached, and afterwards I stayed around and I spoke you know, with some folks in the church that are involved, and so everybody was anxious to, just, just to kind of share their role, and hey, I'm Steve, and I work with the youth, and I do these kind of things, and I'm Carol, and I get to do some work with the women, I do some work with the children, and so I'm just hearing from all these people, and there's this man at the very back, and I would guess uh, like, like about 80 years old, big, big white beard, and I could just kind of tell that he was anxious to speak, and so I said, sir, what's your job in the church? He said, I'll tell you what my job is in the church. If anybody messes with my pastor, I'll kill him. <laughs> I thought, I love that. Come on. Now, I don't think he would have really killed them, so don't. But, but I love the fact that he was like, you know what? I've, I've got my pastor's back. Man, I love that. I've got my pastor's back. Let me tell you something. I, I have a, I've, I've had the chance to Zoom with Justin, but I've had some real good time with Pete and with Matt. Let me just tell you something. I get to go to lots of churches across the country. I meet a lot of pastors. So just in case you don't know, you're very blessed in this church. You are incredibly, yeah. So I hope that you would have that mindset of, don't mess with my pastor because I've got their back because uh, I love that. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna do a little uh, fun walk through some things, actually, Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah. If you can't find Nehemiah, don't be embarrassed. I've been a pastor for most of my life. I can't find Nehemiah. So go, go to Psalms and go backwards. Before Psalms is Job, before Job is Esther, before Esther, you'll find Nehemiah. 
And we're going to spend some time there. And we're going to walk through this story about Nehemiah, just a few brief things actually in chapter one, and then we'll hit the big things in chapter three, which is fun because as you kind of go through the Bible, if you think, okay, I want to read through the whole Bible. A lot of times you get to Nehemiah three, you think, oh my gosh, here's like, it's like 80 names of people that I can't pronounce. I'm going to skip this because it's just a list of names. You will be amazed there's a lot more in Nehemiah chapter three than just a list of names. There's so many lessons for us, especially the way that we can be engaged in our city and the way that we can encourage and care for other pastors and churches. So, 586 BC, just a brief history lesson. Jerusalem is wiped out by Babylon and they take them into exile and chains and, and so they start the exile. And so, I mean, like, it's just in ruins in Jerusalem. And then the Persians come in in 516 AD and they wipe out everybody else and so they take charge. And they say, okay, we're gonna send a group back and we're gonna send a group back to rebuild the temple and the walls. So they send back Zerubbabel and so he goes back and he starts to work on it and he gets the temple rebuilt, which is great, but they don't get the walls and the gates up and that's gonna be extremely important. And they work on that project for decades and nothing happens. So they think, you know what? Let's send a pastor. Let's have Ezra go. He'll be able to do it. And so they have a pastor go. And you know what? He works on it for a long time. And this doesn't get accomplished. And finally, they send this guy named Nehemiah, who is not a pastor. He's a layperson. They send him back. And he's going to be able to do amazing things in a very short period of time, as we'll talk about. So it's a great story about how God uses this man, Nehemiah. And so he writes this book, which is basically, it's his journal. He's just going to write down things in the first person. This is his journal. This is his story. And there is so much in this story about amazing leadership, about cooperation, about community, and how to just encourage each other. Uh, I find great, great hope in this story. He's, he's a man of action. He's, he's very, very much a doer because he will get the walls built in only 52 days. They've been trying for decades, and he'll accomplish in only 52 days what they worked on. And the thing I love about this is nine times we have in this book that he stops and just prays. He's clearly a man of prayer. He's clearly a man when he feels overwhelmed, when he sees things, when he's not sure what to do, he's going to stop and just say, Lord, help me. And so very, 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 very briefly, the first thing that we want, want to kind of, kind of look at here, let me just say, we're going to walk through nine principles. Don't be nervous because some will just go like that. You think, Oh my gosh, a three-point message is oftentimes long. But this is going to be nine things. Some points will go very quickly. We're going to do everything we can to get through nine points. Is that all right? Okay, first point is this. I love the fact that there's a corporate confession of sin, which is so important to be involved in our whole area because he talks about this because he prays in verse four in chapter one. He says this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept because he heard that, you know what, man, Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are down. They're still not fixed. We've had all these groups there for all these years. They're still not fixed. And so he heard those things. It said, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Wow. 
I love the fact he starts off and just worship and praise. God, you're awesome, you're incredible, you're mighty. He's just gonna worship and praise. And then he's gonna come into a time of confession of sin. Now listen, he is confessing the sins that brought the wall down. The wall's been down for over 100 years. They've been trying to fix the wall now for actually over 70 years. But he's confessing the sins that brought on the, the, just this wipeout of just like all of Jerusalem. He wasn't even born yet when these sins took place. And so he does not say, Lord, I confess the sins that my great-grandfather and my grandfather, they so stupidly committed against you. It's not what he says. He said, Lord, I confess the sins that we, we Israelites, including my father's house, we have acted. We, it's incredible. Nehemiah was not personally involved in these sins. But he says we. Why? Because he understands the corporate nature of the confession of sin, which I think that we have lost in so many ways. I think we've lost that sense. It's right to confess our sins. Lord, I confess what I have done. But it's also right to corporately confess. Father, I confess the sins of this church. I confess the sins of Salem. Father, we have acted wickedly. We have not followed you. We have not done the things that you have called us to do. Father, be merciful to this city. Do you ever corporately confess those sins? We need to corporately confess the sins of our nation. But you see, as we confess the sins of our church and of our city, of our state, things are gonna change in our mindset because all of a sudden it's not, well, on that side of town, they've got those issues. It's like, no, on that side of town that happened, but that means that we have those issues. And the only way that you're gonna be able to bless churches around the city and to bless pastors around the city is if you start to understand we. It's not just them, it's not those people over there, it's we. There's a corporate nature of what you're doing here in this city. It takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. You can't reach everybody, you're gonna reach a significant piece, but there's gonna be other churches around the city and there's gonna have to be that mindset of we. That is so absolutely critical. It's interesting that the next phrase in the prayer is, Father, remember, remember the promises that you gave to your servant Moses, those commands and those promises. We need to be people that claim the promises of God. You need to claim the promises of God. How many promises of God has he made us in his word? 7,464. Some of you are trying to think of one right now, right? Okay. Come to me if you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. That's a promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's a promise. We need to claim the promises of God. Now listen, there's a lot of things that God has not promised us in his word. He promises, he did not say that we would not be impacted by cancer, that there would not be, be like unemployment, that there would not be like infertility. He didn't say you'd have a great husband. He wouldn't say you have a spouse that is just incredible and just loves Jesus. He doesn't say that we're not gonna struggle with addictions. He doesn't say that we're not going to experience some pain and death. I would just encourage you in this. Don't hold God in contempt for promises that he never made. Man, I hear that all the time. People are so angry with God, why? Well, because my mother was in pain when she died. God never promised it, I'm sorry. God never promised that your mother would not be in pain. He made us thousands of promises, but that isn't one of them. Thank God we have this incredible new, I mean, this amazing building. God fulfilled this promise. No, 
This building was never promised you. This, this, this is a gift. Don't hold God in contempt for promises that he never made. But it's a we. It's a we mindset, and I think that we have to hold on to that very, very carefully. So let's go to Nehemiah 3, the place that we just skip over so often. Point number two, which I just love. It's awesome to be a part of a team. Way too many Christians live sequestered, isolated lives. God did not create you to live a life, I mean, some type of a life where you're isolated. God created you for community. We have been made to need each other. We have been made to share our lives with each other. And I don't know how old you are, but let me just make sure that I, that I just qualify that. Social media does not count as your community. Your community on Facebook and TikTok and Twitter does not count as your community. Social media is where community goes to die. It's not real community. We need to have real community. We need to be engaged with each other. And so Nehemiah is brilliant. So they've worked on this wall for all of these years. And he comes in. He's an amazing manager. And he understands how to get things done. So he looks at this wall and he says, you know what? We're going to stop thinking about this as one big wall because it's overwhelming. And we, we've tried here for seven decades. Here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide the wall into 41 pieces. And then we're going to create 41 teams, and we're going to put different teams to work on different parts of the wall. And we're going to put people that kind of live near that part of the wall so that there's this ownership, so that you feel like, hey, man, this, you know, I own this. And we're going to create teams of, like, you know, moms and dads and their kids, and we're going to create a team of people that work in this type of industry. We're going to create a team of just people that work to make perfume. They're just... They're going to be a team, and they're going to work on a part of the wall. It's incredible. But they create this team because they understand a team is what brings people absolutely together. It takes all types of churches, right? It takes all types of teams. And so to reach this city, it's going to take churches that understand, okay, we're, we're going to kind of take this part of the wall. We're going to be on this part of the wall. And it's going to take everybody as they work together to say, the only way that we can do this task, which is overwhelming, you say, we want to have an impact upon Salem. We want to reach this city for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have to break up these tasks. We're going to have to have teams. We're going to have to be a part of each other. But we're still going to have to have interaction because we're a community. It's a we. We need each other. And so understand that God has called you to a very specific part of the wall. In this church, in this church, God has called you to a very specific part of the wall where you have been called to serve. And so find that part of the wall and serve well. We'll talk a bit more about this in just a second. Number two, excuse me, number three, three. No job is beneath servant leaders. Verse one I love verse one, it blows me away. Elijah, the high priest and his priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, how many high priests are there? There's one. There's one high priest. This is the guy that goes into the Holy of Holies, right? Every year on the Day of Atonement and he's kind of the spiritual leader. He's kind of the big guy. Now, don't you think if he's the spiritual leader that his job should just be to walk around the wall and say, you know, bless you and bless you. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I would do. I think, man, I'm like the Pope here, kind of. I'm just going to bless everybody. That's not what it says. The high priest rolls up his sleeves and goes to work with the other high priests. 
And that's a picture of humility. The spiritual leader is going to get to work. Listen, I've, I've, I've already learned very, very quickly that your leaders work hard and that they can roll up their sleeves and get to work, which I love that. But if we're going to lead, if we're going to have a place in which we lead in this city, we're going to have to be able to say, you know what, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to roll up our sleeves as a church. We're going to be involved with our city. We're going to do these things. And just because we might have some type of a role where we kind of lead in some areas, just because we might have some size in some areas, whatever it might be, doesn't excuse us from the call to be those that work. I love the high priest. The high priest and his fellow priest went to work. Man, I hope that that spirit just constantly goes with us. So no job is, you know, is actually beneath our calling. It might be trash. It might be toilets. You know what? No job should be beneath our calling if we do it for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? We're going pretty fast, aren't we? You're kind of impressed? Okay, number four. Here we go. No one has the right to be an antagonist. Verse five, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work underneath their supervisors. Just, they just wouldn't do it. Now, here's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is, I just love this verse. The Jeshna Gate was repaired by Jodiah, son of Peshem, and the Mechilab, and on and on and on. They laid its beams, its bowls, and its bars in place. Man, is that not incredible? Man, the Sheshna Gate was repaired by Joe. That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If I had to choose my top five verses, verse six is in it. Do you see what's so amazing about that? It's incredible for what it doesn't say. Because there is a group that's on, you know, that there are these teams, 41 teams, and there's this little part of one team that says, we don't want to work. We just don't, I, and listen, I don't know what they didn't like. I don't know if they didn't like the color of the carpet they were going to lay. I don't know if they didn't like the, you know, the wall paint. I, I, I didn't know what they didn't like. But there's one little group that says, you know what? We're just not going to work. The reason I love that verse is that it doesn't say, and there was this one half of one team that wouldn't work, and so we shut down the entire project, and we formed a special committee to find out why they were upset, and we formed an exploratory committee to just take some more time to find out why aren't you willing to work, and so we shut down the whole project, everything stopped, because we felt so bad that this little group of antagonists were not having their needs met. That's not what it says. It's almost like there's a little parenthesis in there that it's almost like Nehemiah says, hey, for lack of the right word to say here, you know what, to heck with you, we're just gonna go on. In other words, you're not gonna set the agenda for what happens here. You're the antagonist, but listen, God gave us a plan and you're not gonna shut the whole project down because you're an antagonist. Antagonists love to shut, they love to shut everything down. They love for everything to come to a grinding halt because their own needs have not been met. You know what they are in the church? They're joy suckers. They come into the church, it's like they have this little tube and they just, just suck out the joy. It's just crazy. You know, oftentimes I say, okay, are, are they people that don't know Jesus and that's part of it? Or, you know, that there are those people you think, I think that they know the Lord, but I think they're just unhappy and mean and cranky. You know, oftentimes I meet those people and here, here's my prayer. Lord, take them home. <laughs> now listen, that, that might sound cruel. 
listen, listen. They'll, they'll be happier, right? Their spouse will probably be happier, right? The whole church will be happy. It's a win-win all the way around. Here's what's serious. No amount of money that you give to this church buys you the right to be an antagonist. No amount of time that you spend volunteering in this church earns you the right to become an antagonist. We don't have that right. There will be people that don't like what you do around the city. Why are we gonna be so involved in counseling? Why are we gonna be so involved in the addiction of others and trying to help them through? Why are we gonna be so involved in homelessness? Why all these other churches and pastors? Maybe we should just shut the whole thing down. Listen, if you're an antagonist, keep your thoughts to yourself, really. Because you don't have the right to shut down what God has called this church to do. I love the fact you guys are almost 75 years old. That is incredible. And God has given your leaders a vision for what should happen over these next five years. Man, I've heard it. I believe it's from the Lord without question. Don't be an antagonist and try to shut that down. Say, you know what? That's what they've been called to. We're going to do everything we can to support them. Now, you might be saying, okay, how do I know if I'm an antagonist? First of all, just ask those around you. Say, hey, be, be honest with me. Can you shoot me straight? Am I an antagonist? You wave the red flag all the time. You go out of your way to make demands. You believe that you're owed control. You're hypersensitive. You'd rather create trouble than give people the basic benefit of the doubt. You attack. You're very, 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 very just easily offended. Man. How can you not be in how? What's, what's the best way to not be an antagonist? Just allow yourself to be discipled in this church. Just allow yourself to be trained up by those who lead you and care for you. Just allow yourself to be trained up to be more and more like Jesus. Oftentimes I'm asked, okay, so in the church, what is the best way for the church to be discipled? That's an easy question. And my answer's changed over the past probably three years. But I think if you wanna be discipled and follow Jesus Here's the number one thing that you need to do. Stop watching cable news 24-7. Really, I'm serious about that. Because you will become like what you watch. And it really gets hard for Justin and for Pete and for Matt to say, okay, we've got these people for like three hours a week at the most if they're involved in some other things. And Cable news has got them for like, you know, 90 hours a week because that's all they watch when they're home. You will become like what you watch. If you watch about conspiracy theories, you're gonna have conspiracy theories. If everything is negative, you're gonna become negative. I'm telling you, the church has been functionally discipled by cable news over the past couple years, and I hate it. I hate it. The church has been functionally discipled by cable news. We need to be functionally discipled by Jesus and spend more time in his word than we do watching cable TV. That was just an aside. That really had nothing to do with the message. Okay. <laughs> Let's go on. Number five, real leadership is not dictated by the prestige of the job. So you've got 10 gates around Jerusalem and you've got all of these different gates and there's some gates that are honestly more important than other gates because way up north, you've got the sheep gate. It's right by the temple. That's clearly the best gate. That's where, that's where like the high priest got to work on the sheep gate. He did get to work on the best gate. 
because that's where everything comes through, you know, for, for the temple. And you have, you know, you have the valley gate and you have the water gate, which is not a joke. That's true. You actually have the water gate. And, and so, like, you have all of these gates. And then we come to this passage in verse 14. The dung gate was repaired by Melchizedek, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethat Karim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. So in the very south of the city, you have the dung gate. That is the least prestigious gate. Why do you think the dung gate is called the dung gate? It's not a mystery. I mean, it's where the dung goes out of. It's where, the, it's where all the trash and the refuse and, and everything goes out of that gate. It, it is not the best gate. Now, it's interesting because not far from the dung gate is this district, Beth Karim, which is extremely important in Jerusalem because it's the highest point in Jerusalem, which means if there's a battle, you're going to usually fight from that area. And so it's extremely important. And so this dude's dad is like the mayor of this really important city. And so his dad is kind of a big deal. And I love the fact that it doesn't say, hey, do you know who I am? Do you know who my dad is? You want me to work on the, on the dung gate? Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to work on the horse gate or the valley gate or the fish gate or whatever. I really don't want to work on the dung gate. But I love the fact. Malkaijah goes to work on the dung gate. Listen, every church has sheep gate jobs and dung gate jobs. You need to be willing to work wherever God calls you to serve. If you serve in the nursery at times, that is literally a dungate job, right? <laughs> but we need to be willing to go wherever God calls us to go. We need to be willing in this city. Maybe we think, okay, we're going to be the church that kind of has these ideas. We're going to kind of draw churches together. And yet you go to some big, big thing, and it's the other pastor from this other church that's up in front. And it was this other church that had the worship team. And this church is being asked to stay around afterwards and pick up the trash. And you're going, wait, wait, what? Listen, we have to be willing to do whatever job calls. You know, he, he might say at times it's a sheep gate job. At times we're called to do the dung gate jobs. We have to be willing. I can't wait one day in glory to meet Malkiah and say, dude, your team worked on the dung gate. Way to go. I mean, you didn't complain. You didn't say, come on, my dad's like the mayor of this really important district. You just went to work on the dung gate. Incredibly powerful. Number six, in all you do, serve with zeal. So Nehemiah walks around in chapter three and he just writes down names. And uh, I mean, like all of these team members and, you know, here's, you know, Carl and he's working on this part of the wall. And uh, here's Cynthia, she's working in this part of the wall. And uh, here's Steve and he's doing this part of the wall. And here's Baruch and zealously working on his part of the wall. There's 80 names in chapter three, only one has any type of a descriptor attached. And it's this guy, Baruch. Baruch goes to work and says he zealously worked on his part of the wall. I mean, I, I can't wait to, what's, what's he doing? Is he singing? Is he whistling? Is he smiling? Why is there so much zeal? Because it's menial labor. I mean, he's working on a wall, Right? It's mortar, it's bricks, it's all of these things. And yet there is something about him that he understands whatever I do, right? Colossians 3, whatever I do, work at it with your whole heart is working for the Lord, not for men. Because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Man, he goes to work. 
zealously. So I've got five kids, so, which means I've had all the kids go through school, which means I've done a lot of field trips in my life. And at the very, you know, the very, very start of the year, it's kind of like, okay, we need moms and dads to, to do like all these field trips. And oftentimes it's, hey, we really, really need dads because we oftentimes get moms and we need, need, need like a lot more dads. So at the very, very start of the year, I go through this list of field trips and zoo. That sounds fun. I could, you know, I could prob- probably get off in this factory, whatever it might be. And then it says, Grand Prix Car Factory in Kansas City. <laughs> that, that, come on. Go to an assembly line and watch them make the Grand Prix. I mean, like the Pontiac Grand Prix. I thought, that's awesome. I'm all over that. So I go on this field trip. And we're on this field trip. And I mean, we, it, takes, it takes hours because we, we walk the entire line. And we see thousands of people that worked on these cars. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I mean, from the frame being actually shaped to the frame being cooled and then the whole thing starts and they begin to, you know, weld this in and weld this in. They drop in the engine, they drop in the seats. And I mean, you know, we walk for like hours and these kids are exhausted, but we just go through person after person. Then we come to the place where the guy has to put the little thing that says Grand Prix on the right front of the car. So, you know, we've, we've been through the whole line. And so we come to this next part and this guy's got this huge, you know, she's got this big, big machine and here, here comes this car, and we're, we're just all watching, and the guy lines it up and just, yes, whoa, yeah. I'm thinking, I turned to the guy that was on the line next to him, and I said, that was for the kids, right? They were just, that was just for the kids. And the guy next to him says, no. Every car every day. I said, you're, you're joking. He said, oh, I wish I was. He said, every car, every day. So, so I, we, we just stand back. Here comes the next car. You know, he does it again, just does this celebration. We're just going like, okay, that is awesome. So we go through the whole line. At the end of the whole line, I'm seeing, we've seen over a thousand people on the line. So like I asked the kids, did, did anybody stand up? Of course somebody stood out. The guy that put the logo, you know, the little Grand Prix in the right front of the car. Why? Because there was so much zeal in what he did. He was so excited. He was just like passionate. It was incredible. And I hope that when we serve in this city that we do it with zeal. I hope when we serve the Lord in this church and around our community that we have a zeal about us where people are going to go, Wow. And there's something about those people. They're, they're zealous for what they're doing. They're excited for what they're doing. There's a passion. There's this excitement. It's incredible. Serve the Lord with a zeal. Number seven. Opposition does not mean that God is not in the project. Because these guys have got people against them. Sandballot, Geshem, Tobiah. Man, these guys create massive amounts of difficulties. You see, way too often we can be like Job's friends and say, whoa, okay, something's going wrong. Maybe God isn't in this. Uh, These things are going wrong. Maybe God is not here. Listen, there are so many times in Scripture where people are right in the middle of God's will and they go through tremendous difficulty, right? It's like, okay, Lord, I'm right where you want me to be. And so Jacob is right where God wants him to be. And God physically beats him up and cripples him for life. He's in the middle of God's will. 
Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's, let's go over here. Well, you know what, I want you guys to go over there and you know what, you know what I'm just going to meet you over there. And they encounter this massive storm in Matthew chapter 14. And yet they're right in the middle of God's will. Maybe things are going very poorly in your life and you're in the midst of huge difficulty and maybe you're right in the middle of God's will. Maybe things are going great in your life. Amen. Prosperity is everywhere. Your business is going great. Your kids are thriving. And maybe you are not in the middle of God's will. We judge things so shallow about the way that God treats us. It makes me crazy at times. So, if I'm in a group of people and we say, hey, let's just get to know each other. Let's go around and share our name. Let's share where we're from. And then I'm always just kind of, what are they going to say? And let's share our favorite movie. Oh, gosh. I I have massive anxiety over that. I'm I'm scared about that. Because I always have to think, will will I be honest? Because I don't want to tell people what what, my favorite movie is. Because I'm afraid that they'll think less of me. Now, let me just say to all the guys here. I like The Matrix, I like Braveheart, I like Gladiator, I like The Patriot, I like Maverick. Okay, I just want you to know that. But my favorite movie is The Sound of Music. I just lost most of the guys. The women and I have just bonded. I'm just saying. Very close to all the women here all of a sudden. I love, I love The Sound of Music. I think it's one of the greatest stories. The fact that it's a true story mostly. The fact that it's just this great story and, you know, there's the tension, will they, won't they, Captain and Maria. It's just, just incredible. And so every time that I watch this movie, there's a scene that comes up and my wife just says to me, either leave the room or just take some deep breaths because involved in that story is a song that is sung. And I don't want to exaggerate or overstate it, but it's the worst song ever sung in the history of the world, okay? I'm just saying that. Because finally, they're out there in the you know, gazebo, and finally, the Captain Maria, they embrace and they kiss. And then Maria sings a terrible, horrific song. It's called Something Good. I will spare you and not personally sing the song. That's why I brought Clark here to sing this morning. Clark, are you ready? Okay, and he's not going to sing it either. But here's the words. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood... Perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Isn't that the way the church thinks way too often? Something really good is happening to me, I must have done something good. Something bad is happening to me, There must be unconfessed sin. There must be something I don't know about. Listen, God is a little deeper than that, okay? God is not that shallow. And what is plaguing the church is sound and music theology. That's what I call it. It's when we are so thin and so weak and are, well, there's some opposition. Hey, we're trying to do stuff around the city. We're trying to bless pastors and bless churches. And there's some opposition. And I heard that Justin is struggling with some things. I heard that Pete got yelled at the other day. God must not be in this. That's craziness. If God has called you to do this, God will be in it. It doesn't mean that there won't be opposition. There will be opposition. Don't have sound and music theology. Don't think just because there's some opposition, maybe we should just shut the whole thing down. 
Gosh, I see Christians that walk away from opportunities because they have sound and music theology. Listen, there will be opposition. Don't do that. Just know that if I'm in the middle of God's will, if I'm doing what he has called, if I'm doing what he's called me to do, there's going to be some difficulties. Number eight. Leaders watch each other's backs. I love the fact that in this story, the word next to appears 26 times in chapter three. This person is next to this. This team is next to this team. And after a while, the opposition will become so great that they're gonna work in a way that they have a trowel in one hand and they have a sword in the other hand. And the sword is to watch the back of the person that's right next to me. I love the fact that there is a community. There is a call. We are next to each other. We are told to watch each other's backs. We are told to be there for each other. Here's the great thing. As we get to know other churches, as you get to know other people, you're going to learn more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a great story that I love. Three great friends, Jack, Ron, and Chuck. Jack, Ron, and Chuck, true story, great buddies. They hang out all the time together. They meet once a week. They smoke cigars together. They drink a little bit together, and they read stuff that they have written that week. And those three guys in the past 100 years have sold more books than any three people combined. Jack is a nickname, right? For, you might know for C.S. Lewis. Ron is a nickname for a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, Ronald Tolkien. And Chuck was a nickname for a guy named Charles Williams. Charles Williams, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, great buddies. They hang out together. They do all this stuff together. It's interesting, but Lewis writes and says he feels like a little bit of a third wheel, which is like Lewis, a third wheel, but he did. He said, I felt like, you know, Ron and Chuck were closer with each other than I was with them. And I always just kind of felt like I was a little bit of an outsider. May 8th, excuse me, May 15th, 1945, Chuck dies very, very suddenly. And Lewis writes in his journal, I think think that because Chuck's gone, it's just gonna be me and Ron, I think I wanna get to know him much better. I think we're gonna become really the best, best of friends in the world. A few months after that, he writes and he says, something strange is happening. Because the more time that I spend with Tolkien, I feel like I know him less and less. And I cannot understand why. And then a few months after that, he has this incredible insight, which is so powerful for the church. He says this, I learned that there were certain parts of Tolkien's personality that I can't pull out, but Chuck could. Chuck would tell certain jokes that like, he would, I mean, Ron would just laugh and laugh at those jokes. I learned that there were certain parts of Ron's just character and his nature and his personality that I lost because I couldn't draw them out. Chuck could. Which told me that I actually knew him better in the context of a community as opposed to just one-on-one. And then he writes... If that's true of us on this earth, how much more so of the way that we think about the Lord? That I can know the Lord better if I spend time with people in a community talking about the Lord, and even more so if I spend time with people who are different from me. If there's diversity, if there's somebody that's black and white and a Republican and a Democrat, and they live in this part of town, they live in this part of town, this person has cancer, this person has whatever, and because each person is going to bring a little bit of a different perspective of God. People are going to think differently. I spend lots of time in Haiti. People think about God just a bit differently in Haiti because 
There, when they say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, man, that means a lot more in Haiti at times than here because it is our daily bread. And so as we spend time with this housewife and this addict and this person who has cancer right now and this person who's unemployed and this person who owns a massive business and things are going well, they're all going to think about God a little bit differently. And we're going to know God better in the context of community because God is like a diamond and there's different facets which different people can pull out. And when you do more stuff around the city and when you're involved with more churches, when you're involved with other pastors, you're going to see these different facets of God. It's absolutely incredible. Finally, be motivated by the gospel. You know what's great about Nehemiah chapter three, everything in Nehemiah chapter three ultimately points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest, right? Hebrews 4, 4, uh, 4 says, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to this faith. Jesus was humbled. He washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus was despised and rejected by antagonists, we're told, Right? It's there. Jesus was despised and rejected, Isaiah 53. He suffered. He knew sorrows. There were antagonists in his life. Jesus was crucified on a dunghill. He was. Jesus Christ, the zeal of the Lord, accomplished our righteousness. Wow. I love Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son has now been given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord our God will accomplish this. The Lord has zeal for us. Jesus is watching our back. We are his brothers, right? It says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, all of these things point us to Jesus because what we desperately need is God's grace and what we need is Jesus. It's incredible that there is such an extravagant grace that has been poured out upon us. It's a big difference between religion and grace, as you all know. Because religion makes you nice on the outside, it's grace that makes you new on the inside. You know, religion says, you know what, I have to obey God so that he loves me. Grace says I obey God because he loves me. We're a people of grace. We're people who've been called by God to have an impact upon this city. And I am excited and I am thrilled for what God has called you to here. Because I think that God is going to use this congregation to do great things in Salem, in Oregon, in the Northwest, around this country, around the world. But it begins as we surrender to him and say, Heavenly Father, it's all yours. And everything we do has got to point to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this amazing body of people. Thank you for the body of Christ and the work that you're doing here. Thank you for Justin and for Pete and for Matt and for the rest of the staff here and the way that they've been called to serve. And Father, I pray that this body would in so many new ways find, find areas in which they can reach up and just encourage them and, and challenge them and love on them because they're very much people too. Father, I pray that you would use this church as a catalyst in this city 
that there would be just this new spirit of cooperation, that there would be people which rise up to serve and to walk with you and to learn more about Jesus because we're with different people. So Father, use us for our good and for your glory that the name of Jesus would be made more and more famous. Father, I'm just gonna pray a prayer. I know that there's a lot of buildings, there's a lot of church buildings around Salem. I pray that there would be a day when we could drive around Salem, see a church building, and we could know without question that the gospel is being preached there. So Father, if the gospel is not being preached in some buildings, either change the heart of those who lead or take away their building and give it to those who will preach the gospel. Father, I pray that there'd be churches that lose their buildings soon here, and those buildings are given over to those who will faithfully preach Jesus. Father, may there be a revival in this city that would sweep across it and touch every aspect of our life. So we give you the thanks and the praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and the head of this church. Amen.